What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell this story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite mythology, history, philosophy podcast, and how those subjects intersect and bubble up into our popular storytelling. As always, I am very, very, very excited to be here. One, this episode has been 100% brought to you by our good friends and followers on Twitter. Yeah. We put out a poll. We wanted to do an 80s fantasy child story as our next podcast. So we put out a bunch of options. Overwhelmingly, I think over 50% of the vote went to one movie, The NeverEnding Story. So here we are ready to do our NeverEnding Story podcast. Thank you so much to everybody who voted on Twitter. And this is not to say that the other films on that list won't get hit at some point. The other films on the list were Labyrinth and The Dark Crystal. And we also had a couple people throw in some wild cards like Willow and Time Bandits. And those are all things that we eventually want to get to. But we're going to be doing this podcast for the rest of eternity. It's a never-ending podcast, if you uh, will. Ah, uh, uh. So <laughs> we will definitely get to those. Uh, but you guys want a never-ending story. I want a never-ending story. This movie from 1984 meant a lot to me when it came out and still means a lot to me today. There is so much midnight myth to extract from uh, the never-ending story that I don't know how we're going to fit it all into one podcast, but I'm very, very happy that we're doing it. Yeah, I mean, there is a lot of material in the never-ending story, so I think it forced us to be very specific on what we wanted to say and how we wanted to say it, and I don't think we're going to have the exhaustive conversation around this movie because I think there will be more and things that, sadly, we had to leave out and that we could also do whole episodes based on and about um, but without further ado, I'd like to roll up my sleeves and get started here. But Laurel, I know we have a lot of news going on. I know our last Wheel of Ka came out. So thank you to everyone who listened to the Wheel of Ka. We are deep in working on the second half of Wizard and Glass to have our next Dark Tower Wheel of Ka episode coming out. What other news do we have going on? Oh, we got plenty going on. Also, I love that you said, without further ado, here's a little bit more ado, and then we'll get to it. But uh, obviously, our merch sale just ended yesterday, but we are definitely going to have some more sales in the future, so keep an eye on our uh, social media for that. Also, just to stay in contact with us, follow us on Twitter at The Midnight Myth. Follow us on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast and on Facebook. There's tons of extra content going up there, especially on Twitter, and we love to engage with you and hear from you. So if you ever have questions, 
comments, suggestions. Obviously, we're listening. We want to know what you want to hear. So we are, our, our ears are open and our hearts are open to you on social media. So definitely check us out there. Also, hit the website, www.midnightmyth.com. There are blogs there. We're probably going to put a, uh, at least one uh, companion blog to this episode in the next week or so. Uh, and there's also our sources and our inspiration for the podcasts are available there. So you can even click through to purchase the books that we're reading or the movies that we're watching. And uh, you can find our Patreon there where you can support us for as little as a dollar a month, as much as $25 a month to get perks, discounts, shout outs on the air and bonus episodes every month. So that would be extremely helpful if you wanted to chip in a couple of bucks a month. You'll also find our merch store there where you can don your favorite Midnight Myth gear. That's a lot, but I think that's it. I think that's all we got going on. Fantastic. And I've been teasing my Game of Thrones blog. I (laughs) I really need to get my life together and finish it. It's a big motherfucking blog. So it's been taking me a lot of rewrites. It's basically a scholarly article at this point. I mean, I'm not a scholar, so I can't claim that. But anyway, let's let's get into the never-ending story. So... obviously we're going to spoil this movie. It came out in 1984. You guys voted for it overwhelmingly. So I think everybody listens is is at least aware of, or has seen it, but it may have been a while since you've seen it. So we're going to do a very light recap on it. It came out in 1984. It was directed by a gentleman by the name of Wolfgang Peterson, an accomplished director. Fun fact that I learned in researching, this was his first English movie that he did. He is a German and does, had done only German and work, works in the German language. Wow. That's good to know, because the original book by Michael Ende was written in German. Was written German in German author. and then eventually got translated into English. Yeah. Um, it's, it's about a character named Bastian who is dealing with his mother having just passed away, and he is living with his father, and Bastian is a little bit of a social outcast. He comes upon a book called The Never-Ending Story, sort of given to him by this old wizardly fellow who is working at a bookstore when he's trying to escape some bullies, and he starts reading this book. The book takes place in this land called Fantasia, in which there is a thing called the Nothing that is threatening to engulf and destroy the entire world. And we see a bunch of colorful characters make their way to the child empress so that they can figure out a way to maybe stem the tide of the nothing, which would engulf and destroy the entire world. In it, they summon a warrior named Atreyu who has to go out and has to fix this problem and defeat the nothing. He goes to a swamp of sorrows. More on that later. Then he gets transported by a luck dragon to the very southern point where he talks to an oracle that says he has to find a human And that human has to give the empress a name. And this is the point in which Bastion reading the story, as well as Atreo going through the story, start to become more one and becomes metatextual. Bastion eventually, in the rain, decides he will name the empress. After the nothing nearly destroys the entire world of Fantasia, he names her Moon Child. As given the last grain of sand of Fantasia, using the power of his imagination, he rebuilds the entire world. And that's the movie. That was a really great recap. Don't forget, he gets to ride Falcor with one of his wishes at the end and scare the crap out of the bullies who were uh, harassing him. And it's awesome. It's a wonderful sequence. I, I would like to begin with a few things in terms of analysis. Undoubtedly, this movie is a fantasy movie, but it got me to a fundamental question. What is a fantasy? And I was doing some Googling and I found a really interesting article titled, 
From How Fantasy is Made, Patterns and Structures in the Never-Ending Story. It was published in 1990 by a professor of education at the University of Cambridge by the name of Maria Nikolajeva. And it's a Swedish name, and I just brutalized it, and I apologize to Professor Maria Nikolajeva. But in it, it distinguishes that fantasy is derived from fairy tale. Fairy tale is the origin to fantasy, but fantasy has a few differing key um, characteristics that you don't see in fairy tale. And those are, quote, fantasy does not follow the rigid pattern of the narrative built up by centuries of oral tradition, but is instead shaped by a particular author's arbitrary will. Second, fantasy is a synthetic genre that has assimilated the traits and motif from the action-adventure story, the nonsensical, the chivalric romance, etc., Third, much more than the fairy tale, fantasy involves a many-move narrative structure where each move is a separate sequence of functions, and moves do not necessarily follow each other, but are intertwined and may even have independent sets of characters. That third one's a little academic-y, so I want to unpack that. Think of your reading The Lord of the Rings, and one part of the story has Frodo, and the other part of the story has Aragorn. These are separate characters doing separate things that have separate moves that intertwine but aren't necessarily directly related to each other. Whereas in a fairy tale, you have Hansel and Gretel, and it's just them and their moves. Or you may have Cinderella in the oral tradition itself, and you just have what this one person does, whereas fantasy can have multiple moves. Where this applies directly to the never-ending story is the difference and sameness between both Bastion and Atreyu, who start the narrative of two separate characters who in the end start to blend and become more like one character. And then end again as separate characters, once Bastion is able to rebuild Fantasia from his imagination, we see Atreyu is separate. But there's a moment there where they start to sort of blend and become one. So I think this is a really useful structure to identify, hey, are we dealing with a fairy tale or are we dealing with fantasy and what's the difference? I think never-ending story follows the genre of fantasy. Other things, there's a lot of discussion about what high fantasy is and low fantasy is, and I found that those terms can really tend to mean nothing. So I personally want to uh, not use high fantasy versus low fantasy. I think that's fair. I the the terms themselves are loaded. My interpretation of high fantasy has always been that was actually coined by Lloyd Alexander who wrote The Chronicles of Prydain, the like Black Cauldron novels, and he just used that to refer to fantasy set in a secondary world, which this is to an extent, but the lines are so blurred and we are working in metafiction, so I don't think it really applies And I I think I agree with you. Those terms are loaded enough. We don't really need to uh, ascribe to them right now. Yeah, I read an entire article that was that low fantasy is more geared towards adults and is more sexualized, like Conan the Barbarian. And high fantasy is dedicated to children and is desexualized. And I'm like, what the fuck? I'm like, that's completely made up. Yeah, these terms get used a lot. I want to avoid them for this conversation about this. I want to take this book as a a piece of fantasy, plain and simple, as an evolution out of the oral tradition of the fairy tale. I love it. Moving right along here, there's a lot of amazing iconography. And iconography is the study of symbols, of icons. 
And there's a ton of interesting pieces of iconography and tons of amazing imagery in this, this film that I think were worth talking about from a midnight myth lens. What's the history of these symbols? What's the mythological significance? And what's the historical significance? Would you like to start in the iconography? I agree. Yeah, I was just going to ask if I could kick this off. Because do. I want to get this started with talking about Arin, the Arin. This is the emblem of the childlike empress that is given to Atreyu as a medallion to wear uh, as the symbol of the childlike empress and as protection. It's also the symbol that is on the cover of the book, The Neverending Story, that Bastion takes from the antiquarian bookstore. The second you see this symbol, it's extraordinary. It's really striking. It's two serpents symmetrically intertwined uh, so that their bodies are forming these coils around each other, and each one of them is gripping the other's tail in their mouth. Uh, this symbol is important to point out at the top of this podcast because it is inspired by the symbolic tradition of the Ouroboros. You've probably seen an Ouroboros before. It's similar to what the Orin looks like, but it's usually a single serpent that is in a circle and it has its own tail in its mouth. It is devouring its own tail in a way. The symbol comes to us from the ancient Egyptians, where it was probably linked to cycles of death and rebirth and linked with imagery of the god Osiris, who is a god who underwent a resurrection myth. So it's linked to that uh, divine origin, but also perhaps as an observation of the natural world, the flooding of the Nile, the death and the rebirth of the land. Uh, later, this symbol, the Ouroboros, will be absorbed by Gnosticism and Hermeticism in Greece. These are both esoteric traditions, and Hermeticism forms the basis of what we know today as alchemy. So most of the times that you see an Ouroboros in like medieval manuscripts or later manuscripts, it's because it's associated with alchemy. This icon becomes linked with the Philosopher's Stone, something you have likely heard of with its connections to Harry Potter and elsewhere. Uh, but the Philosopher's Stone was a sought-after ingredient or uh, item that alchemists believed would help to create the elixir of life, would help to transmute base metals into gold, and was sort of the catalyst for all of the things that they were trying to make happen. But it's usually uh, in some way associated with longevity, with eternity, with infinity, with rebirth, with a cycle, something that has no beginning, has no end. So the Ouroboros becomes this image of infinity, like a never-ending story. But there's a universality to this symbol that I think is important to point out at the top of this, because while we get it from Egypt and Greece and these cultures that absolutely had a, a form of exchange between them, we also see it in distant lands and distant uh, sort of symbolic traditions. So the, uh, the serpent Jormungandr, who encircles the tree, uh, the, the world tree Yggdrasil of the Norse tradition, is sometimes described as having grown so long he could bite his own tail within his teeth. It's a really specific thing to recur across these mythological traditions. And then it also shows up in the Book of Kells, which is a, an illuminated Bible manuscript. So it gets absorbed by Christianity. And some scholars even think it may represent in the East the cycle of samsara, rebirth, reincarnation, until you can break free of the cycle. So I want to call attention to the universality of that. As we see it on the cover 
of the never-ending story as it becomes the emblem of the childlike empress? What does the Ouroboros, this symbol of eternity and rebirth, say about the inhabitants of Fantasia and about the people reading and participating in the story? And I think an interesting place to go to is the fundamental problem that this narrative is trying to address. That is the battle against the nothing, which I think we will talk about the nothing symbolically, what that means. Yeah. But we are seeing and witnessing a death of a world, a world in decay, a world that is dissipating and disappearing. And we are seeing that the inhabitants of this world facing this threat, they need to go to the empress who rules this land to say, what's the plan? How can we save Fantasia from this? And the guiding symbol is the Orin. The protecting symbol is one that is intimately linked cross-culturally to rebirth, saying that though things may die, they will be reborn. Right at the very beginning, that the nothing may consume them, but there will be a rebirth. There is a chance for a rebirth. There is a, a cycle that is never ending. And that cycle involves death and rebirth. And though they are facing this nothing, this sort of oblivion, a fate that seems almost worse than death, as described by the rock eater, a hole would be something. But this was nothing. Not able to describe it in just pure oblivion is the way that I envision it and see it. And that what will guide us through, what will give us strength, the idea that through this nothing there can still be a rebirth. Yeah, there's a faith in that rebirth. Just a side note here about the nothing. This was the movie that introduced me to a, a sort of existential despair. The nothing as the like primary negative force in this film was really mind-blowing for me as a child, but it also felt really familiar. And I just want to throw out that I appreciate how much this film trusted its children, the audience of children, to understand why oblivion and nothingness would be a terrifying threat. Well, yeah, let's shelve that and come back to that. Because we were going to do iconography first, and then we'll jump jump into the philosophy second. But yeah, let's come back to that. Okay, thanks. I just wanted to put that out there. Absolutely. Uh, You got some more iconography you want to talk about? I do, yeah, unless you want to trade off. No, no, you go next. All right, cool. So the next thing I wanted to bring up here was Morla the Aged One who is the ancient turtle that Atreyu encounters after he has gone through the swamps of sadness. Uh, The horrible, horrible loss of Artex was also just a traumatic experience for me watching as a child. Oh, for everyone who watched it. It's not better as an adult. No, it's still terrible. It's worse. And I, I read the book in preparation for this, and it might be worse in the book too because Artex can talk. And he articulates for Atreyu what he's going through. He's like, I give up. I want to die. It's it's really devastating. But moving on to Morla, the aged one. Uh, the ancient turtle archetype is something I think we can all relate to. We've, we've all seen ancient turtles. In- I relate to it. Dark Tower, baby. Absolutely. Well, and I'm glad you brought that up because I think there are a few parallels to the Dark Tower within this that I don't know if they're conscious or not, but I think that uh, listeners of the Wheel of Cobb might enjoy this episode a lot. But what I wanted to call some attention to is that when Atreyu meets Morla, the aged one, it's because he's standing on top of this tortoiseshell mountain and then realizes that it has a head and is now talking to him. The landscape itself 
wakes up and is this turtle. And that evokes uh, a mytheme, a mythological motif that occurs across numerous cultures known as the world turtle. This is primarily going to show up in mythologies of China, India, and even, interestingly, the mythology of the Iroquois in North America. So it's got a pretty wide reach, um, but the ancient turtle is a, a fairly universal symbol. And this, uh, this idea of the world turtle says that the entire world, the entire earth, sits on the back of a turtle that is floating through space. There are some versions of this where the world sits on the back of four elephants, and those four elephants sit on the back of a turtle. There's a famous pop culture interpretation of that version uh, in the work of Terry Pratchett. His Discworld novels are set in a world that's literally a disc on the back of four elephants on the back of a turtle floating through the cosmos. But I was interested in why there's this obsession with the turtle. And I think a part of that comes from observations of the natural world. Obviously, turtles have a very real average lifespan of 80 years. And in some species of turtles or sea turtles, they might live to be 150 years old, which is crazy. That's beyond human beings. And when life expectancy today is as high as it is, I can't imagine what it was like in the ancient world when your life expectancy might be, what, like 30 or 40, and you see these turtles that just seem to have this ancient wisdom about them. But this mythological idea of the world turtle also lends itself to an epistemological uh, thought experiment uh, known as turtles all the way down. And I think that this also gives us some context for why it's included in the never-ending story. Uh, the phrase turtles all the way down was coined as a way to understand the problem of infinite regress, which is basically saying that since if you make a proposition, you have to offer a justification for it. Like I can't just say the sky is blue. I have to say the sky is blue because this. Uh, if you say, I think the world sits on the back of a turtle, if somebody asks you, well, how do you know that? What does the turtle sit on the back of? You might say, well, it's turtles all the way down. Infinite regress basically says uh, since you have to offer a justification, you might run into a situation where your justifications just go on ad nauseum, turtles all the way down. It's basically the philosophical equivalent of two mirrors facing each other and what you might optically see there. And that image of two mirrors facing each other is something that is directly referenced in both the book and the movie of Never Ending Story. This idea of the mirror as justification uh, trying to understand a deeply ununderstandable, incomprehensible world. I think the turtle gives us a little bit of a way into that. For those that don't know, epistemology is the study of knowledge. It's trying to answer a fundamental question of how do we know what we know? How do we know what we know? Yeah. So the, the turtle, I think, is intentional in the respect that it represents that mythological tradition of world turtles. The... To the broader question of the problem of regress, if I may follow up with that. Yeah. Is the problem that we have to find justification, hence we create more turtles for the turtles to sit on? Is that the, like, I'm not sure I understand the nature of the, the problem or what the solution would be. It's, uh, it's just an illustration or an expression of the fact that because you must always give a justification for a proposition, you might run into a situation where 
the answer to your question is just the same answer ad infinitum. Uh, so it's like when a kid is bothering you, every time you say something, they go, why, 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 why? And how do we answer that? Well, it's just turtles all the way down. Got it. What's the solution to this problem? There, it, there isn't one. <laughs> no. There aren't any like good theories out there? <laughs> no. Oh, okay. Fair no, no, enough. no. It's, it, it's, not a, it's not an answer to a, a, a thought problem. It's an illustration of a thought problem that we don't have an answer to yet. Well, and in the face of that unanswerable question that we don't know the solution to, one might be resigned to tuck themselves into their shell, start talking to themselves, and realize that, fuck it, I'll just become a nihilist. Yeah. None of it means anything anymore. I've lived too old, and I've been in my shell for too long, and there's no point to any of it. And if the nothing comes and we all end up in oblivion, oh, well, that's better than existing. Yeah, and that's Morla's problem here, that she won't give Atreyu the answers that he needs, even though she knows the answers, uh, because she just doesn't care anymore. Just doesn't give a shit. Yeah. I've lived too long and nothing matters, and uh, just go away and let the oblivion come and consume me, and I will just dissipate into non-existence. Yeah, ugh. Tragic. Absolutely. Which in many ways can be read as a rational response to the phenomenon sure. of the nothing. Sure. If it's going to happen where we'll be in oblivion and not exist anyway, well, then our existence surely didn't matter to begin with. Otherwise, there couldn't be a nothing. Yeah, I think, yeah, absolutely. I'd like to also talk a little bit about some iconography. Yeah, please. I, I, by the way, I loved what you brought to the table there. I thought that was really interesting and Thank fun. Thank you. I wanted to single into the sphinxes. Now, this leads a broader question of what is a sphinx? How can we understand the sphinx? And how are they using sphinxes in this particular um, story? So a sphinx is a human being with the body, or no, is a mythical creature, pardon me, with the body of the lion and the head of a human. Anywhere there's a body of a lion, head of a human, boom, you've got a sphinx. Fundamentally, there are two different types of sphinxes that have made their way from the ancient world to ours. The first is where there is the body of the lion and the head of a man. These are generally attributed and ascribed to ancient Egypt. The great sphinx at the pyramids of Giza, known as the Sphinx of Giza, is an Egyptian sphinx. Body of a lion, head of a man. Um, the Egyptians have sphinxes all over. They're genuinely considered in an Egyptian mythological tradition to be protective, to be strong, to be fierce. If you are being buried in ancient Egyptian burial rituals, the statues and the iconography that you surround yourself are literal manifestations of the world. So you might want to put a sphinx by your tomb so that you can be protected from your journey from this life to the afterlife, which is the main reason why we believe there to be a sphinx by the Pyramid of Giza. The very first pyramid that was built has a sphinx protecting it, and the pyramids were tombs for the pharaohs. Um, then there's the Greek tradition. They surface about 2,000 years after when the original sphinx of Giza was supposedly originally built. Caveat, no one really knows when it was built but supposedly built about 2,000 years later, we see sphinxes in ancient Greece. 
Those sphinxes typically have the body of a lion and the head of a woman. And they're almost always winged and often have a serpent-like tail. So they are like a mixture of both a snake, a lion, a person, and an eagle is sort of the combination. They're a little more chimeric than the... uh... Egyptian Sphinx. And they're also a little more destructive. Yeah. For example, there's the riddle of the Sphinx in Sophocles' story of Oedipus that asks people the riddle. If they don't get the riddle correctly, the Sphinx kills the fucking person. And so they're a little more mischievous, they're a little more violent, and they're a little more aggressive. We see when Atreyu finally gets out of the swamps of sadness, we see him have to pass through a gate of Sphinxes. This is the gate, the first of two gates he must pass to get to the Southern Oracle, and the Southern Oracle is another pair of two sphinxes. These sphinxes are decidedly female with the large breasts that they have. Oh, yeah. You can also tell by the facial features that they're a little more feminine than masculine. And the voice of the second pair of sphinxes. They have the body of a lion. We don't see serpent-like tails, but we do see eagle-like wings. Yeah. But interestingly, they're wearing a headdress that appears to be a bird of some sort. But that's also very Egyptian, that the Egyptians were known to have little snakes at the top of their, um, especially royalty and gods of their headdresses. So it looks a little Egyptian, but it's decidedly not Egyptian. So first question is, are we seeing Greek sphinxes or are we seeing Egyptian sphinxes? And I think we're seeing primarily Greek-inspired with that slight Egyptian um, influence, especially in the bird headdresses that they have. They look a little more Egyptian, but uh, no tail, so they don't have that, but decidedly look a little more Greek with the wings and with how female they are. They're also serving as gatekeepers, which was sort of the role that the Sphinx in uh, Oedipus uh, played in, in offering that riddle to Oedipus so that he could enter the town. And there, one is glowing a like goldish, orangish yellow, where the other one is a paler, bluer, whiter color. I think we can understand the different colors of the Sphinx. One, the first gate, and two, the Southern Oracle, as both sun and moon. I think it's pretty clear. In fact, when we yeah. see the blue Sphinx, there's a full moon right behind it associating it with the moon. But when we see the yellow sphinxes, we don't see any constellation or moon. It's because they're so bright it drowns it out. If you cross the gate and you do not truly fully believe in yourself, what happens? You get cooked alive through these like laser bolts that come out of the eyes, which is also a very sun-like power. Deadly rays that can burn you to a crisp. So we cross through the sun then to get to the moon. The moon, obviously the empress's name, is what? Moonchild. Moonchild. That's the name that he gives Bastion to the empress so that they can rebuild Fantasia. So there's obviously a moon imagery. Uh, The moon in mythic tradition is typically associated with the feminine. It's typically associated with cycles of rebirth. It's typically also associated with hunting and huntresses. For example, Artemis as the huntress goddess was also associated very deeply with the moon. So we have a sun and day, or sorry, a sun and moon sort of dichotomy between these two sets of sphinxes. One is deadly and ferocious. One gives knowledge and wisdom, the sun being destructive and being deadly, the night being cool and giving wisdom, which is a 
direct reversal of how this would probably go in an ancient myth, where the sun would give life and power and knowledge, because in daytime you can see things, where that night it would be a little deadlier, it would be a little less safe, and it would not be the time you want to be out and about. So it takes that sort of sun being life-firming, night being scary, and inverts it in this world in the way that it inverts Bastion, who is both in the story and outside of the story. I wonder if that's also reinforcing the masculine-feminine qualities and uh, the the comparison between the moon sphinxes and moon child, uh, femininity being life-giving, literally being the mother energy versus the destructive father energy, which we often will perceive in our myths and in our popular culture. Uh, so I wonder if that's part of it. Uh, I also just wanted to throw in here that the Ouroboros, which we mentioned earlier, is in the hermetic uh, tradition, often associated or seen on the same pages as uh, images of the sun and moon. So it's linked to both of those symbols. Which brings me to a broader point, one that the study of ancient sphinxes, just as in the study of the Ouroboros, can really point out. And as well as I think it relates to the iconography of the world turtle. Nothing that we do is in a vacuum. So one might ask, how did the ancient Greeks and the ancient Egyptians come up with these symbols? And that is a riddle worthy of Oedipus. No one really knows the answer. But there are several plausible things that we can assume. And the easiest one is, is that the ancient people were integrated that humanity has been integrated. Yeah, that they were talking to each other. What happens in one point of the ancient world will affect the other. And the stories that we tell can reverberate. The symbols that we use to tell these stories can reverberate. That an ancient Athenian can go to an ancient Egyptian city such as Thebes and see a sphinx and come back and adopt that sphinx and then recontextualize other Greek things through the lens of the Sphinx so that there is a blending or through the world turtle that they can blend these different symbols and iconographies is part of the whole puzzle of understanding the importance and the, the cultural significance of sharing narratives. The never ending story is a representation of a blend of a German story that then gets translated to English that then gets picked up by a studio who then hires a German director to make an American movie. Yeah. It's fucking beautiful. Yeah. It's really beautiful. And in it, we see things from Egyptian symbols to ancient Indic symbols to ancient Greek symbols, all blending together in this beautiful and bizarre world called Fantasia. And it's exciting to, to realize in kind of digging into the research of the iconography in here is that looking at Fantasia, looking at the world that Michael Enda and Wolfgang Peterson built for this story, you might say, oh, they're just blending all of these different cultural mythological ideas together without any respect for the actual cultures themselves because these you know, were totally different mythological traditions. But then as we explore this, it's like, wait a second, the cultural exchange between the Greek and Egyptians into what became Hermeticism and alchemy created the Ouroboros as the symbol that it is today. Or the Greeks took the, the Sphinx from ancient Egypt and made their version of it. Like there is, there is a, a deep and lengthy tradition of this cultural exchange that is being acknowledged rather than being created out of whole cloth. Totally. 
I'd like to back up a little bit too before we get to the Sphinxes. And I want to talk yeah. about, I think, two of my favorite side characters. They're in fantasy, there is a role of someone that is there to give information or assistance or aid to the hero on their quest. It's a time-honored role, one that we have talked about at length at this podcast before. And in this, Atreo gets three helpers. First, he gets Falcor, the luck dragon, who shows up and plucks him out of the swamps of sadness and takes him right to the verge of the Southern Oracle's first gate. The second are the two gnomes, elves, these little... They're gnomes, yeah. They're, they're officially gnomes. Angiwook and Ulger. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I, they, they look very elf-like or gnome-like. Yeah, they're gnomes. Okay. So one of which, whose speciality is in making potions, and based upon that, likes to make healing potions and likes to make medicines, and she is the female. And then there is the male whose speciality is scientific experiments about the Oracle. What I find interesting in particular about the male is the blending and adding of of science into a fantasy narrative that I think is singularly unique to the never-ending story. Here we have a magical creature studying a magical object but using the principles of observation, documentation, experimentation in order to predict phenomena, using the scientific method to try to understand something that is inherently magical. He says that the gate can see into your very heart. And he says that because he can observe other things. He says, fancy armor is not going to help you. He has documented what happens when people to try to cross this gate to try to understand how these gates work, and he documents it. He wants to publish it. He wants it to be peer-reviewed, and to him, it is a matter of science. And I think that throws the—we talked about epistemology of how do you know things. It throws the fantasy epistemology into a bit of a new paradigm here. Magic can be understood like any other natural phenomenon. It can be documented based upon our observations. We can predict how this will work. And then once we have that, we must share it with our peers to be reviewed, to see, to make sure I did my work up to the standards of science. Yeah, I, I love it. And I love that you brought this up. And when we were first discussing this, I was like, oh, you know, because the iconography is so entwined with alchemy, I bet that's because... Uh, the never-ending story has a huge like uh, connection to the, the birth of alchemy. Uh, alchemy, you probably uh, just think about it as the pursuit of immortality or the, um, the transmutation of base metals into gold. Obviously, that's really reductive and there was a lot more to it. But when you think about the inception of science and how alchemy really was uh, in, in, instrumental in making science come about, uh, the same way that uh, astronomy came about so that we could better understand astrology. It was the pursuit of things like immortality and the magical transmutation of metals and purification of materials that led us to uh, the scientific revolution eventually. And to uh, things like chemistry. And to things like chemistry. And I was really excited to be like, oh, I bet that's a connection to alchemy. And then I found out through a little bit of research that Michael Enda, the author of the book, The NeverEnding Story, was deeply influenced by the work of this guy, Rudolf Steiner, who was a founder of 
an esoteric tradition known as anthroposophy. And this was a tradition that basically sought to expand the, uh, the human consciousness toward a new evolution by observing and acknowledging an objective spiritual world that we can understand from our own. So the people who were followers of anthroposophy were working to perfect a form of what they called spiritual research, uh, training new faculties within themselves through a process of uh, what they knew as imagination, inspiration, and intuition as a way to apply the same sort of basis of scientific observation and experimentation that we use on the natural world and on our physical experiences to spiritual and soul-based experiences. So there's a, a whole tradition that Michael Enda is pulling from to inspire the gnome Ingiwuk to want to quantify and science magic. And so I just really appreciated that there was this huge, long history of what Angiwook is doing here, while he's introducing a totally new paradigm to fiction and fantasy, it's something that we can observe in our world. Very interesting and very cool. Isn't that cool? And I think that should open us up to pivoting to some of the philosophy of this, Yeah, which could be its own hour-long podcast, because there's a lot to say, and we're trying to get through everything we wanted to say. Let's talk, I think, First and foremost, if you'll permit the kickoff about the nothing. Let's talk about the nothing. You mentioned that it introduced you to existentialism. And in a part, I kind of agree with that, but I also in part disagree. Okay. If I may, because I, I think you're both right and wrong if, okay. if, if there is such a thing. And sorry if I sound like I'm speaking in Sphinxian riddles here. I said it introduced me to existential despair. Well, Despair is a central tenement to existentialism. Existentialism is an artistic and philosophical movement that propagated in particular in Western Europe, mostly in France, after World War II. Right. After all of the horror and destruction that humans had done to each other in that war, there was a consequence where the great thinkers and great philosophers and great artists started really wondering, wow, what's the point of all of this? Right. Central to existentialism is the individual and the individual's capacity and ability to choose. And the individual is, as Jean-Paul Sartre, one of the founders of existentialism, says, condemned to be free. Condemned to be free. All we are are our choices. We are the summation of our choices, nothing more and nothing less. And we are condemned at the end of our life to look back and look at our choices and say, this life was entirely my own. And if my life was miserable and sad and lonely, it's because I chose to be those things. Right. And uh, in that, we are constantly in a state of despair over this, which is not to say that you have to be in depression because of this. You can be in the state of existential despair and still feel things like joy and happiness sure. and pleasure. Those things are part of your life. But at the end of the day, we're condemned in this scenario that we are totally and completely free. The nothing is a representation of the failure of imagination in a 80s materialistic American society, as contextualized in this movie. Right. What causes the nothing? The nothing is a collective failure of people to imagine. It is a response to the despair 
to choose not to engage in imagination. This is where the philosophy of the movie gets really awesome and really weird and can go in many different ways. Sure. Fantasia is linked in a metatextual way to the imagination of the readers of the book. Those who read the book create the world. And since they are creating the world, the world's existence depends upon the belief of the reader. When the readers stop to believe, stop believing in this fantastic world, the world crumbles into oblivion. Right. Or when, you know, the reader's dad says, you have to keep your feet on the ground. That's the kind of thing that will kill the imagination in kids like Bastion eventually and stop them participating in the narrative. So the nothing can be read as the manifestation of Bastion's existential despair. Yeah. Knowing that he has to choose to either be a grounded, realistic person like his father or a more person that's willing to engage in imagination and dream like the Empress. Right. He has to make that choice and that's his and his inability to choose and his lack of desire to believe manifests in the nothing. The nothing is in and of itself to me, though not existential because it's not a choice that the individuals who suffer from it make. In fact, they choose to stand against it. This is true from the rock biter to the guy with the racing snail to the guy that flies the bat. All of the characters are choosing to fight the nothing, but can't. And we could, though, also read this nothing as the World War II manifestation of existentialism. Here's this thing that is just engulfing and destroying everything that we all love and smashing it into oblivion causing characters to go into despair, such as the rock biter. Right. Who sits there and goes, these look like strong hands, but as strong as they are, they can't stop the tide of the nothing. Right. So I think it is both a representation of an existential philosophical outgrowth, but I also think it it represents more Bastion's existentialism. I think that's good. I think that's, that's really helpful. For me, uh, seeing this movie for the first time, I was disarmed by how much I could understand the idea of total oblivion being the the the, the force that is destroying Fantasia. Um, even as an adult, it's hard to find the words to describe it, but it's just that pit in your stomach that feels so impossible to fight, so inconceivable, but so inevitable. And uh, for me, I think that's a huge part of why this movie was really uh, important to me growing up was that it gave me an opportunity to name and wrestle with, uh, you know, something that felt intangible rather than just a monster. Uh, And so that's just something that I want to give this movie the incredible credit that it deserves for. Um, but, But I appreciate that context around it. I think... uh, as far as the philosophy of the never-ending story goes, there is beyond you know wrestling with the nothing, there is also just the affirmation of imagination, the affirmation of the act of creation and participation with our stories. Uh, I think that this narrative, as never-ending as it is, is so because Atreyu's been on this journey a thousand times or will go on this journey a thousand times or will continue this journey until the end of time, right? When he first encounters in the ruins of Fantasia the murals on the wall that depict his quest 
and have every episode in his quest uh, spelled out as he's just experienced them. Is he looking at prophecy or is he looking at history? Uh, and I think what the never-ending story is saying that is that every time a person reads this book, every time a person reads any book, they infuse themselves in the narrative. They become the main character. Fantasia has no boundaries. It's a land completely made of the hopes and dreams of mankind. It's imagination land, if you will. Uh, but our stories are swallowed by emptiness when we don't engage with them, when we don't believe in them, when we don't infuse ourselves with them. And so it's through our participation, our imagination, our, ins our inspiration, our intuition, that we can help to keep them alive, but also exercise the most important parts of ourselves. Yeah, and at the center of this narrative is a boy without a mom. Yeah. And the boy without the mom who wants to just read stories and escape and wants to just run away and wants to hide in an attic and read a good book, a boy who can't stand up to the bullies who are punching and pushing him down, a father who says, get your feet on the ground here. And I'd like to draw, I think, one of my most favorite quotes of the whole movie. Yeah, please. And it's said by, I'm blanking on her name, the female gnome who's the doctor. Urgle. Urgle says, it has to hurt if it's to heal. Mm. And one of the, the, the things that Bastion, the character, in order to grow, he has to face the fact that his mom died unjustly and that he has to face this hurt if he's to heal. And that Atreyu has to literally feel pain from his wounds if he's to heal. And Bastion is not able to heal from this tremendous loss of losing his mother. And he's escaped into books, which has given him the gateway to Fantasia, which then gives him the ability to finally start to heal. How is Fantasia saved? The Empress needs a name, a simple thing. It has to come from someone from outside Fantasia. It has to come from someone in the quote-unquote real world. And what name does he give her? The name of his mother. Yep. Moonchild. Yeah. Does that sound like a woman whose feet were on the fucking ground? Not to me. Not at all. Yeah. No, there's... <laughs> Not at all. I love that quote, that it has to hurt if it's to heal. Our feelings need to be felt so that we can move on with them, right? Our, our difficulties need to be named so that we can fight them so that we can move past them. And sometimes the world needs to burn so it can be rebuilt. Yeah. And it's a terrible fact of human existence that it is through death and destruction that we can heal and rebuild. And that is a horrible cycle that we have been trapped in since the dawn of civilization. Since we started writing down what humans do to each other, we've had to do terrible, hurtful things in order for us to find ways to heal and come together. And the never-ending story is part of that cycle. It is a snake eating its tail. It absolutely is. Any final thoughts? Uh, I think this has been a tremendous discussion. As much as we have covered, I still think there's so much more to say about the never-ending story. So I do want to put up a blog in the next week or so, so watch the website, watch our social media for that. Um, I... I love this movie. I love Bastion uh, calling out Moonchild. I love uh, 
that this movie affirmed for me what I've always believed, which is that if you can lose yourself in a book, you can do anything. You can visit any world uh, and that the world becomes endless and limitless and that the sky becomes the fucking limit for what you can achieve and what your dreams can uh, can build for you. Uh, it makes me feel like a kid again. And even though this is a movie that <laughs> through some of its really tragic sequences uh, kind of traumatized me as a youth, uh, it still warms my heart so, so much to see uh, this affirmation of the role of storytelling, of imagination, and of creation in the universe. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of insane that this movie even was made. Oh my God. I mean, the 80s, like the 70s and 80s, had this rare moment where a kid's movie, after 15 minutes in, a horse can choose to drown and kill itself in a swamp. Right. There is a nihilistic, mythic ancient turtle... The sphinxes are completely showing their their memories. Oh my god, yeah. In a way that just would not be happening like now. Major boobs. There is a knight who gets shot by the sphinxes who we see his burnt flesh. Yeah. Atreyu is essentially a child being sent on this quest and is greatly abused. There's a puppet of a werewolf who discusses existential philosophy. And in this all, I saw this movie when I was like fucking five. Yeah. You know, when I was a little boy, like that really, like there was a moment in time where this movie could be made and be made as well as it was and as great as it was. And this is why we threw the Twitter poll of like, what wackies 80s fantasy do you guys want us to tackle? Because I just don't think we'll see a time where the music or the music, the movie industry will return to kids' movies like The NeverEnding Story or The Dark Crystal. Or Labyrinth or The Last Unicorn or, yeah, any of those. That just magical time where things got fucking dark and they got fucking weird. Yeah. And I I don't necessarily want to be nostalgic-fueled and say that that's a shame, but it's a shame. Yeah, I, I think what I miss most is uh, the, the trust of young people. I think it's something we've returned to on the podcast a few times is that our young people deserve better and they deserve their stories to tell it like it is. Like, and I'm not trying to like talk shit on current children's movies. No, I'm not a hater. Great. Pixar but, is doing great shit. Yeah, yeah. I'm not a hater of where we're at necessarily, but man, there was some weird fucked up awesome things and they set me on a path yeah. as a young man that got me to where I'm at today. And I'm like, I love the path that I went to. And the never ending story is a huge part of that. Yeah. Absolutely. It helped open me up to want to do things like play Dungeons and Dragons, read weird books about philosophy that no one else would read because it helped to confront things like the nothing in your own life. And that was awesome. And until next time, be kind. Be kind. Be kind.